Bagpipes are an important instrument of Scottish culture. Bagpipes are also the instrument of House Atreides, its canon. That means House Atreides is mother freaking Scottish. Atreides! 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 <laughs> Got the fade out there. Happy to represent my Scottish heritage. Uh, hey, you know, I can. I'm Scottish. My great-grandfather's father was from Scotland, so I've got some in me. Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a piece of literature to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny. I'm the self-appointed film expert. My name is Laura, and I am the self-appointed literature expert. And this is another special episode. It's been a long time coming after a year of delays. It's finally here. The movie I couldn't stop talking about. I just couldn't shut up about it for the past, even before we started this podcast. I've been waiting for this thing for a while. It's finally here. And we have the pleasure of welcoming back the guest who is on our previous episode where we covered Dune 1984. That's right. It's finally here. We're covering Dune 2021, directed by my boy, (laughs) Denis Villeneuve. (laughs) And it's our pleasure to have back Dr. Sean Flory on the pod. Say hi, Doc. Hi, guys. It's great to be back talking to you guys about, uh, about this movie. And Villeneuve was the right choice to direct it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert for my review. <laughs> that, uh, that's an understatement. Yeah. So, listeners, uh, you might recognize Sean's voice from our episode on Emma as well. But he was first on our Dune 1984 ep, where we talked about how that wild and crazy and fever dream of a movie that we love, despite its many flaws. Well, Sean loves. I I kind of hate love it, uh, because it's so weird. (laughs) But this is a movie I 100% love, love. I can't wait to get into it. This is coming from the man who has already ordered and worn his House Atreides sneakers. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it was it was a full targeted ad. And I would like to say that I'm above targeted ads. I, I'm and you know what's crazy? Everyone knows that our phones are listening to us. However, I was talking to Laura after the screening saying how much I admired how in this new film you really felt House Atreides was a loyal family. Like you would want to be a part of House Atreides. And we also love the color of House Atreides, Hunter Green, which is one of our wedding colors for upcoming ceremony. Mm-hmm. Additionally to that, I was talking to Laura about how I needed some new sneakers. Okay? Not 24 hours later, scrolling through Instagram, what's the first ad I see? It's Dune-themed sneakers. <laughs> And I came across one. It's the APL. That's the brand. Special edition Dune sneaker. House Atreides edition. With the hunter green on the soles. They have the House Atreides bird. And then on the back they have House Atreides. And on the on the inside they have uh, Duke Leto's name. So I'm like, <laughs> yes, I will spend a redacted amount of money. I'm usually good. I'm good with my spending. But this was a case... I immediately purchased it. I didn't even think for a second. 
probably not the wisest decision. <laughs> we are saving up for a wedding in Los Angeles, so um, we'd have no money to spare. But I spent a pretty penny on them. I'm not wearing them currently. They're in a box in our closet just waiting for a special day. Um, but yeah, so. I sense a Google search coming so I can get a, a pair of House Harkonnen. Beast Raban. <laughs> Doc, they they sell House Arconan, uh their red sneakers, and then they also have an Arrakis sand colored shoe. So there's that too. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you the link. Before we get into it, Doc, if you just want to say a little bit about yourselves to maybe for the people who haven't listened to the two previous episodes you're on. Yeah, sure. Um, well, to all the first-time listeners who have not heard my now classic um, episode on <laughs> Dune 1984. Yeah. Um, I've got a, my name is Dr. Sean Flory. I've got a PhD in English um, from LSU, and I am currently teaching at the University of Jamestown up in North Dakota, where Laura was actually one of my students several years ago. I can't remember exactly how many years ago it was that you graduated, like six or seven now? Yeah, uh, five or six, right? 2016? Yeah, five. Yeah. Five? 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 Yeah. Mm -hmm. Time flies. Yeah, it (laughs) really does. And I'm on this podcast because when uh, Laura and Danny uh, announced that they were having a Dune episode, um, I jumped on jumped into their mentions i guess or jumped into their comments and demanded to be a guest on that, on that it's episode true. yeah uh, because dune is my favorite book <laughs> and i love uh lynch's version of dune even though it is it is very very flawed in the product of someone who should not have been directing a sci-fi big blockbuster masterpiece <laughs> yeah yeah especially of a book that's mostly unfilmable yeah. <laughs> right and yeah. we'll get to the many decisions that Denny V and the screenwriters made to mm-hmm. miraculously make certain stuff filmable. I mean, the voice, well, we'll talk about the voice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of gets into our journeys. So you're the one who put me on to Dune. I would was always planning on reading it, uh, being a fan of sci-fi, but admittedly, like I've said before, before this podcast, I was not a big reader. This podcast propelled me to read more and I read it for that episode we did. It became, quickly became one of my favorite books as well. It's probably the, the top next to 11-22-63. I love it. And then my relationship with Denis Villeneuve. So I first saw Prisoners in 2013. That blew me away. I immediately saw Sicario, one of my favorite films of all time. It's in my top 10. A year later, he made Arrival which is also in my top 10. So it's safe to say that I love Danny V. Uh, for Laura and our first date, we saw Blade Runner 2049. A solid, solid, beautiful film. Not one of his best. But then, Dune. D- well, I, would disagree, I would disagree about Blade Runner 2049. That is... I- think that that is an amazing movie it's still but we're not gonna get into into a big fight about (laughs) which yeah well this is here's here's what i'll say about blade runner 2049 okay the late great roger ebert once said no good movie is too long and no bad movie is short enough ah fair enough so blade runner 2049 is the one exception i think blade runner 2049 is an amazing movie, both thematically, obviously visually, but it is too long. And that is its one and only flaw. 
And I like long movies. I mean, Dune 2021 is two hours and 35 minutes, but mm -hmm. I think Blade Runner is just too long. So that that's all I'll say. We, we could spend <laughs> hours talking about that movie. I've been waiting forever for this. I was watching the industry news when the casting was going out and when he was assembling his crew. Greg Frazier is the DP. I've been following his career for a while. Sad that Roger Deakins didn't shoot it, but Greg Frazier was well up to the task. Mm -hmm. I hope he wins Best Cinematography this year. So yeah, I, I worship at the feet of Denny V. Um, he works with the best and he is the best modern director right now. He's usurped Christopher Nolan. I think Christopher Nolan has leaned more into the spectacle, whereas Denis Villeneuve is spectacle, but also character development <laughs> and emotion. Because um, love Tenet, but that is kind of a hollow uh, movie emotionally. It looks mm -hmm. cool, but there's nothing really there thematically. So that's what I'll, that's my journey. Laura. Um, oh, I was going to let our guest go next. Dr. Fuller, do you want to take it? <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I hope this doesn't bore repeat listeners. <laughs> because It's uh, not going to no. bore um, me. I, 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 <laughs> that's fair, fair enough. That's, I, I first read Dune when I was a kid, like when I was probably like 11 or 12. Um, and I know that I, I read it after I actually saw the movie. For what This was the 80s, so people had different standards of child rearing. So showing a 12, 11 year old David Lynch's Dune was not grounds for having them taken away by child protective services. You don't think you'll be showing it to Lila anytime soon. I don't know how she deal with the guild navigator right at the beginning, the, the, the nightmare cottage cheese space baby. That shows up immediately. It's just like, Super I mean, disturbing. It, a racer head is probably a better first, <laughs> first list movie. <laughs> and that's a dive into the deep end. Yeah, <laughs> that really is. But I remember watching it and my mom was, has always been a big sci-fi sci fan. Um, and so she said, well, here's the book that it's based on. You can you know read that. And it makes a lot of, makes everything make a lot more sense in the movie, which it did because, you know, it's got most of the narrative in it and most of the character <laughs> development and it doesn't have nothing but a voiceover that consists of sentence fragments to try to explain how everything fits together. <laughs> oh, uh, which again, yeah. even, even though I, even though I love Lynch's Lynch's movie, it's I, I imprinted on it like a duckling. I, I recognize <laughs> that it's, 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 it's a bit much. And even when I go back and rewatch it, it's one of those things where I watch about 30 minutes at a time. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to have to finish this over the course of like three or four days. Yeah. But then I read, I read the rest of all the other, all the sequels, um, at least in, in Frank Herbert's uh, a series of the hero before he died. And I've basically reread at least Dune every year for like the last 30 years. <laughs> it's one of those that I keep wow. going, keep going back to. Mm -hmm. And I've worked my, my way through the entire series, probably about five or six times. And then his son published some prequels and sequels. I started reading some of those until they became obviously naked cash, dra cash grabs. Mm -hmm. And now they're just like, oh, whatever. Not <laughs> even makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, so I was really waiting for, wait, waiting for, when I heard that, that Villeneuve was, was making Dune, I was incredibly excited just because, like when I saw Arrival, that was a, a mind-blowingly good yeah. um, science fiction movie, which it, there's not a lot of really smart science fiction movies. Yeah. And it's like in the last, I don't know, 15 years, I can think of maybe two and it's basically a rival and probably interstellar. 
yeah. which is my favorite favorite Nolan movie for putting Nolan and, and Villeneuve together. Yeah. Just the fact that it has a linguist, an English professor is the hero. I know. Like, yes. I, exactly. As soon as I started, I was like, wait, this movie's about the structure of language? And she saves the world via conversation. <laughs> and, I mean, it has a wildly, a wildly, wildly ridiculous view, view of what an English professor's office would actually look like, even at Columbia or Harvard or wherever it is that, that uh, Amy Adams' character is teaching. Yeah, you were uh, stuck in a windowless box for a very long time. <laughs> I was. Now I have a window. <laughs> yeah. Wow! Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was just an amazing, uh, an amazing movie. Um, and so when I heard that he was going to be that he was directing the frankly unnecessary Blade Runner sequel, mm-hmm. um, I was just like, "Why are they making this?" And I was just like, "Well, even if it has it serves no ex- no no purpose, it has no reason to exist." At least it'll be a good movie because Villeneuve is making it. And it blew me away when I went and saw it. Went, went and saw it. One of my colleagues, uh, Mark Brown, uh, went and saw it together. And it was just like, we both walked out and we were like, wow, that's better than the original movie. <laughs> Which I didn't yeah. think was something that I would, not something I thought I would actually, I would actually say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when I heard that he was, he was up for Dune, I was actually kind of surprised since it wasn't, wasn't Blade Runner 2049, wasn't it kind of a commercial failure? Yeah. Yeah. It, it wasn't a flop in the traditional sense, but it didn't make money for Warner brothers. So a failure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of surprising that they would give him a project that was arguably even more difficult <laughs> to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. But Blade Runner was, is already a, it was a heady. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. So let's, let's get something that's got, that's even bigger. Let's cover something. Let's have a movie that is, Let's have a book that, again, that everybody has sort of agreed since David Lynch failed to film it was almost unfilmable. The best version was that cheapo sci-fi channel miniseries. It was actually pretty decent for yeah. by the standards of what late 90s, early 2000s TV before before all, all the studios, before all the TV networks started actually pouring money into their series and making things like trying to be like HBO. But the fact that they actually gave him the chance to do this and obviously gave him the resources to do it and didn't didn't take the obviously lower box office than they were hoping mm-hmm. before giving a green light to make the second half, I think it's just astounding. Yeah. In all, all sorts of ways, from like just a business perspective is also just from their from the studio's willingness to have that kind of faith in, in somebody who's obviously a genius. Yeah, yeah, I was ready to get my heart broken because leading up to the premiere, Warner Brothers was saying, we stand by this movie, we're going to consider the streaming numbers along with the box office. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. I've heard I've heard this before. I don't want this to be a situation where there's no sequel. And I knew it was going to be half a story. I knew it was going to be part one. So I was so nervous, but I'm very pleased that, that yeah. Warner Brothers have, they stood by their comments. They love this film. Everyone loves Denis. Everyone who's ever worked with him has nothing but good things to say about him. And it just seems like a best case scenario for everyone. I'm beaming right now because it's like, there is hope. <laughs> there, studio, a studio like Warner Brothers, who historically has not treated artists fairly, um, mm-hmm. that this seems like the uh, an exception and what an exception it is. So, 
Amen. Yeah, I also wanted to interject that Danny had so little faith that after he got home from watching it in the theater, he pulled it up on his computer and streamed it all through the night to make sure that we were getting the numbers <laughs> oh, on the streaming Gotta service. get those numbers up. <laughs> it was like, his computer was like half closed, but he like, every time he'd like go to the bathroom, he's like still looking at the screen. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we got those streaming numbers up. Thanks to Danny. Yeah. I single-handedly greenlit this evening. All right. Lore, your history with uh, Yeah, were you done, Dr. Blair? Were you good? No, I'm done. You wrapped up? Okay. Um, I mean, kind of like Danny, I didn't have a super long journey with this piece before we decided to cover it for the podcast. And I don't think that it was any secret that the first time I read it, I was just like, what is going on? It's dense. It's <laughs> dense. Way too much for me. And I listened to it the first time because I think I got about a third of the way through reading the book. And even with the appendix and the glossary, I was not getting through it. And it just kind of sat on my bedside table. And it was like, every time I had to think about reading it, I was like, no, I'm going to read something else. Like, I got <laughs> I got better things to do. So I ended up listening to it and kind of got the story. But especially by the second half, I was just so out of it. I honestly couldn't even summarize the second half of the book for you. I was just, I was checked out. Um, and then I watched the movie. And I was horrified. <laughs> I was like, "What did I, What did I get myself into?" The dude, uh, the Lynch, version. the Lynch version. Yeah. So as this movie was coming out, I was hearing all this great stuff, and I was like, "Yeah, but I still got to read the book again." Ugh. <laughs> um, but I I saw the movie as I was reading the book again, and the first half of the book, I was everything clicked, and I I think it was just. You know, Dr. Or Sean, you told me when I was in college, like, always read books multiple times because you're only going to get the story the first time. You really have to look past the story to start getting the meaning. So I think it was just a combination of being able to visualize characters and also just being reintroduced to the material that made it click a lot better for me. And then you know, sort of like a magic trick, the second half comes and I was like kind of <laughs> lost again. I was like, oh yeah. God. And I did end up liking the second half a lot better. Like it still kept my attention a lot more. And by the end, something that I didn't remember was the whole thing between Jessica and Aaliyah, oh, Aaliyah. and Princess Irulan. And that whole conversation at the end was super interesting to me. And that's yeah. kind of what made me perk up my ears again and say like oh that's like now I remember why all of the or now I understand why all of the like pre-chapter interjections are there and it reminded me of the end of Hamilton because I was like oh the women are documenting the story and like the women yeah. can't be forgotten in this whole thing which is something that I miss a lot sometimes in the story is just like yeah. some women in general <laughs> like, <laughs> Chani is cool Jessica's cool but in a lot of ways I kind of feel like they're just too prop up Paul and that gets a little bit boring for me after uh -huh. a little while but no, at, at the end they're kind of vindicated and so yeah I think on second read it made a lot more sense I still have a little bit of a mental gap when it comes to some of the timing of things because so, like there's like a huge time jump a couple right. times that I I kind of like missed I was a little bit lost but overall loved the movie 
absolutely loved the movie. I'd watch it again. I had a lot of fun with it. And we haven't stopped talking about it, I think, since we saw it. Mm -hmm. This is now, I think, the third podcast that we've discussed it with. Because <laughs> um, we were actually guests on another person's podcast, and the Super 70 podcast. And yeah. we thought we were going to talk about Akira for the whole episode. And then he like spun off into Dune, and we we're like, great, let's just talk about Dune for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> so we just keep talking about it. And yeah, I mean, what a time to be alive. Like, what if we weren't alive at this time to like, what if we had died before the Denise I don't want to think about that. <laughs> well, that that's got grim horror. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, that's me. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Even though it's one of my favorite books, I was not looking forward to rereading it so much. I just, you know, wasn't jazzed for it because I thought I knew the story so well. But the second time around, picked up on picked so up much more, like a lot with Dufir Howitt. A lot with a Benny Gesserit that the first time just completely mm -hmm. went over my head. And you, Sean, had explained a lot to me in our last episode. I'm like, oh, that's what they were doing. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. Great reading it the second time. So let's get into it. Sean, how did you watch the movie? Because I know that's a big thing, whether streaming or theaters. And then general thoughts, your opinion on the movie before we deep dive into the analysis yeah sure um well originally i was hoping to be able to actually watch it in the theater back in the summer when it was obvious that it was coming closer maybe it was did it get delayed in terms of like it's released like it's like a like multiple times wasn't it supposed to come out this last summer yeah it was or something delayed so back in august of last year it was delayed from december 2022 i think summer 2021 and then mm -hmm. it was delayed again to October 1st of 2021. And then HBO Max was saying, okay, we're going to release it in theaters and streaming, but now it's going to be October 22nd. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> delayed three times. That's, I think that it was before the, 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 my plan was to go and see it in the theater like last summer when it was still theoretically going to be, going to be there. And I can't remember exactly when the, what the timeline was. Um, but then the Delta variant hat hit and got yeah. delayed even further. And even though fully vaccinated and got booster shot and it's all this sort of stuff, me and my special lady, um, Elizabeth, did not feel like going and sitting in, um, sitting in the, in the theater in, in North Dakota, which is filled with idiots. <laughs> and so we didn't feel that that was a necessarily a good idea. So we watched it um, on HBO Max in, in my living room and it was, it was, it was, it was a really, I really enjoyed the movie. It was a really, it was really, really good. Even though, um, because Elizabeth has not read this, read, read the book and Villeneuve does not make it easy for people who aren't familiar with the story. Mm -hmm. And that, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a flaw or if it's just makes, if it's, it's something I'm still sort of thinking about in terms of what I think about, Necessary you know, some of the choices almost. that he made to convey some of the stuff visually. So we paused it. We ended up pausing it like every, you know, 10, 15 minutes so she could ask questions and me, the, the, the human Dune encyclopedia could sort of explain <laughs> what was going on. Your house. Try to yeah, tell her your what eyes it, went back in your head. Just... Tell her what, <laughs> <laughs> try to tell her what the quiz that's Hatterack is supposed to be. <laughs> sort of um, but no, it was, it was really, it blew me away at how faithful it was to the, to, to the novel. Yeah. In terms of, you know, the pacing, it didn't really change the plot, the, the order of the plot, which was something that I thought might happen because obviously they cast Zendaya, who's super huge right now, is as, mm -hmm. as, as Chani, and she shows up for what, 
three minutes at the beginning and maybe 45 seconds at the, yeah. in the last scene in the movie. <laughs> right. Which I know she's going to be a major, obviously going to be a major character in, in the second half. But uh, it struck me, it was it was crazy that it was that faithful and, and also that big. That's like the only word I have for it. It, it looks big <laughs> the mm-hmm. way that the, that the novel is big. Uh, both in terms of the visuals as well as you know the the, the thematic points uh, that Villeneuve is trying to is, is pulling out of the novel, which is is stuff that Lynch never got to in his um, in his his adaptation uh, yeah. because he was too busy dealing with his weird Lynchian whatever the heck that Lynch <laughs> whatever the heck David Lynch has going on inside of his head at the trying to put up put up put on screen. Yeah, it just blew me away at how good it was. Couldn't agree more. It's pretty much best case scenario in that it is very loyal, almost beat for beat, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Some scenes are exactly the same with some dialogue tweaked to make it flow quicker. But it also never loses sight of the scope and spectacle. Mm-hmm. And And the third thing is that there's no dumb exposition, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's not dumbed down at all. Of course, the three of us have read the book, so we know the story. So it's hard for me to kind of comment on how well he interpreted the story for someone who's never experienced it before because we just knew it so well. Mm-hmm. But it's a perfect adaptation for someone who's read the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so we kind of touched on themes, but do we want to talk about like what themes he was successful at pulling out of the book. I feel like we have to go in like really big conversations in the beginning because mm-hmm. it is so faithful that like for someone who really enjoys the book, but I'm not, I feel like I'm not quite at the point where I can like analyze the book. Dr. Flory, what do you think that Denis Villeneuve, I keep calling you Dr. Flory. I'm so sorry. That is such, <laughs> that is such a, His like name a, is Sean. <laughs> such a habit. <laughs> But anyway, Sean, what are some of the major themes that you think that he successfully pulled out of the book? Like, obviously, there's a lot of lot going on in the novel um, mm-hmm. in terms of Herbert looking at the role of religion in politics, the role of you know what happens when you have a when basically there's a single substance uh, that is completely important for the economy of an entire society. Obviously, the spice is oil, essentially, um, yeah. in terms of in terms of that big metaphor. It's about colonialism. It's about all, all sorts of stuff. Obviously, you know, ecology, the role of ecology in, in 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 shaping societies, and all this all this sort of stuff. I think that what he got across best in this one, or the thing that that seems like Villeneuve is, is really going for, is the the, the theme of colonialism. Um, mm-hmm. And the ways in which uh, colonial powers, you know, tend to oppress their uh, the people that they're uh, that they're that they're ruling over uh, or colonizing or however you want to put it, because I, I, that and that's that's sort of that opening model, uh, voiceover by uh, by Zendaya. That's kind of seems like his mission statement for the entire for the entire movie because she's mm. talking basically giving a one sentence or I don't know how long that is like ninety second. Um, summary or overview um, of kind of the entire plot of, of the novel um, or the backstory of the novel. And you've got that visual of that, I don't know, that nightmare light bulb thing, whatever that vehicle is supposed to be. <laughs> I have no yeah. idea what it is. And the Fremen coming out with their bazookas or whatever um, on the dune to try to shoot it. And then it just... 
so I don't cool. know. Podcasting is not a visual metaphor. So <laughs> no, I think so you did it really well. <laughs> but those rockets and those missiles that just loop up and it just the, the clear, overwhelming yeah. power of the Harkonnens in terms of oppressing the people who actually live on, on, on Arrakis and not really caring about, about, the, about them at all. Mm-hmm. With the Atreides being different yet also similar. You know, because they're coming and, and definitely, you know, uh, Duke Leto Atreides is much more noble than Baron Harkonnen or the Beast Raban or any of the other, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, any of the other Harkonnens. But it's very clear that he means to rule. Um, he yeah. wants to actually, he actually wants to rule Arrakis and try to get out of a trap that he knows that he's at, he's, he's gotten himself into with the, the emperor giving him, uh, giving him this thief. Um, on Arrakis, but he wants to exploit the Fremen just as much as, as, as the Harkonnen do, do yeah. just in a different way. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's something that I started picking up a lot more in the novel the second time, because mm-hmm. I feel like the first time when I was reading it, the houses are framed extremely clear. Like Harkonnens are obviously the bad guys and Atreides mm-hmm. are obviously the quote unquote good guys. So that's what I had sort of, created the structure to like live in in my head and then as I was reading the, the second time I was like I'm not super sure that Leto is that much better than Harkonnen because yeah he he wants to treat people better but he's still exploiting them and he's still ruling over them he's not talking about giving their planet back and right. so I was like I started feeling a little bit more conflicted about that house so I'm glad that that's coming through a little bit for me now, because I think that's a little (laughs) bit more accurate to the overall message that colonialism is bad in all of its forms. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. if you have a leader who says like, wait, but I'm being nice. It's like, well, but you're still exploiting an entire planet. (laughs) Yeah. There's that great scene in the movie where they meet Stilgar and Mm -hmm. Stilgar interrupts and says, no, you're here to take the resources and give nothing in return. And then mm-hmm. Paul interrupts at like out of his place saying that's true. And there's a beat where everyone like <laughs> kind of thinks about it. And the directing is so good that you can tell what people are thinking without them saying it. And mm-hmm. that, yeah, what Paul says is like, that's true. He confirms it. So Duke Leto, obviously a very noble man. I mean, I would love for him to be my, my ruler. <laughs> I got his shoes for Christ's sake. <laughs> And Oscar Isaac, I mean, what a beard and what what a man. Yeah, what a cast. Oh, Danny, role. you, Danny, you fell for the Atreides propaganda machine. I, hey, <laughs> hey, I I know I I fall for yeah I I totally bought into it. Um, but yeah, I I agree that Frank Herbert and Denis to an extent is saying like no, even with the best of intentions, what Duke Leto is doing is not enough. Paul is becoming mm-hmm. the one, one with the natives. Like that is true salvation, I guess, for the indigenous people is to like, no, you, the Atreides were wiped out just like the Fremen were for millennium. Mm-hmm. And the only path forward is to just become one with the natives and then take over their land. So take back their land, excuse me. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting conversation, too, about sort of the white savior role. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. it's... I think one of my favorite characters in the movie was Duncan Idaho. I love his character in the book, but I Mm -hmm. really love how Jason Momoa 
walked that line between he's obviously very loyal to the Atreides, but he also has a lot of respect for the Fremen's culture. And I don't know about you, Sean, but one of my favorite scenes was when Stilgar comes into the court and he spits on the table. And that it can, it's so obvious to, which is a scene in the book. It's taken straight from the book. And I think it's so Mm -hmm. obvious to the, audience that that even in our culture would be very disrespectful to spit at someone so if you Mm -hmm. haven't read the book it's pretty i think it's pretty clear that denis villeneuve is like yeah this is a great statement that this is like misinterpreting this culture and there's this person who's Mm -hmm. gone to their culture and can sort of interpret that for them and say like this is the most sacred thing that this person could be giving you um but yeah it's still it's still a white guy who goes and like <laughs> doesn't quite, I feel like Duncan Idaho has such a great respect again for the Fremen and he went and mm-hmm. lived with them for a long, really long time. But, but Paul, I don't know, like it's, it's really hard to ask that of him and be like, yeah, but you could have like stepped aside and given all of your power to like Kynes or Stilgar. And I feel like maybe that would have been a better way to empower the Fremen. <laughs> well i mean politically speaking it's also i mean the it's obviously this is going to be much more probably much more heavily touched on in part two but the the fremen in the in the novel have been very and everybody in arrakis has been very heavily influenced by the Bene Gesserit. you know this yeah basically the puppet masters behind everything (laughs) sort of trying basically trying to control the universe um on their own terms by uh an invented religion Right. So the way has been prepared for, I think, I right. believe the Reverend Mother at the beginning, at, right at the beginning, uh, she says something to Jessica. I can't remember. I, I've only seen the movie yeah. once. We've done, um, uh, on Arrakis, we've done all we can for you. But let's yeah, hope basic- Paul follows the path. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically setting up this religion where a Bene Gesserit and her kid are set up to be messiahs. Right. Yeah. So you got the Fremen, all the people in, who show up at the, at the landing field really cool scene are screaming Mahdi, 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 because they think that Paul is the Lizanne Al-Gaid, the, the, the voice of the outer world. And so they have it all set up. And he, at least in the novel, very consciously follows this, but he's trying not to turn it into an absolute bloodbath, the jihad that he right. thinks is going gonna, is gonna to occur. But what's interesting is that he actually does become converted by this fake religion that he knows is fake. <laughs> it's just yeah. kind of an interesting interesting uh kind of uh, kind of tweak um, on that yeah but laura what you're saying transitions nicely to the next topic i wanted to bring up which was the changes made to duncan idaho in the film jason mm-hmm. momoa man who knew that he would be a fan favorite like the dude can <laughs> act and so yeah denis and his screenwriters wisely tweak their relationship with him and paul to be that of an older brother type mm-hmm. relationship where in the book it's much more mentee mentor and duncan Idaho actually isn't in the book as much as people talk about him like he's only in it for a few scenes and like dies off screen it seems like or or it's very he's- brief yeah the, the scene the scene where he where he dies is like where they're escaping is like very quick um, yeah. you know Paul just sees 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 a bunch of sees him fighting against people in the book and then basically somebody shoot when Sardaukar shoots him in the head yeah um, okay yeah and so it's he's he's there in terms of his his reputation as like omnipresent as one of the best warriors in the in the galaxy I think it was really really interesting 
that they that, that Villeneuve did make him into a, a more important actual character um, in the in, in the movie, just like he did with the Beast Raban, uh, yeah. with Dave Bautista. That was mm-hmm. a, he's not in it probably as much as, Dun- as as Duncan Idaho, but he's still there as more of an antagonist um, than he actually is in the in, in the novel, where he just shows up in a couple of scenes. Right. One of which is to grovel to the Baron for screwing everything up <laughs> second right. second yeah. time running the place. Yeah, let's definitely talk about both these guys. Yeah, so in, in the movie, when Duncan first shows up, Paul runs to him and they have this brotherly embrace. And Paul talks about his dreams to him. They clearly are really good friends, like like brothers. Mm-hmm. And... Duncan says this great line, dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake. Mm-hmm. Also kind of alluding to how Paul's visions of the future are not visions of the definite future. There are potential futures. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of sets that up. It also is just a great line on its own. And then every time Duncan comes back in the movie, Paul and Duncan just embrace and he goes, my boy, <laughs> kind of like <laughs> he, in Aquaman, he said, my man. And now in Dune, he goes, my boy. <laughs> uh, but you, Paul clearly loves Duncan and you as an audience member, you love Duncan. And Jason Momoa is so theatrical and, and lovable in that kind of mm-hmm. big teddy bear type way. That, yeah, you just love him. And the internet's gone wild with Duncan Idaho memes. And mm-hmm. his sacrifice scene, talk about a hundred times better than the book, uh, a positive mm-hmm. change. Like you were saying, Sean, it's just a quick scene in the book and you really feel nothing. I felt nothing because Duncan's not really that developed in the book but in the movie although sacrificing yourself for the heroes to get away is a cliche denis pulls it off because with Mm -hmm. the score booming and it makes sense for duncan to sacrifice himself because the whole time the atreides protect leto and paul and jessica with their lives like that's their number one goal so it completely makes sense it was a great scene and when he died i'm like damn he's he's out no more jason momoa that's like he is dead dead and we don't have to bring up how in dune messiah they bring people back from the dead that's we don't have to talk about that but um yeah laura yeah. any thoughts yeah i definitely have thoughts so i think that it's particularly smart storytelling how they change duncan's character because i think by showing that him and paul have such a great relationship i think without telling us that they have a close relationship and without telling us that Paul has been grown into not only a fighter, because we see that with Gurney, but also as Mm -hmm. like a caring, respectful leader, because we see that through that sort of tweaked relationship with him and Duncan, I think that is like informing the audience that he has not only like the street smarts and the, the battle readiness, but also the listening and respectful aspects of him so that he can become a great leader and possibly a better leader than his father, because I think his father is drawn more from like a sense of duty rather than necessarily mm-hmm. a sense of like feeling like something is right, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's, that's just really smart storytelling. And uh, again, like Danny was talking about with the house of Atreides guardians, basically, which Duncan Idaho is part of that army. Like he, he does, he kind of, he gets a mortal blow as the door is closing. And as Paul is saying like, no, like 
you know, obviously, like, obviously sad as he sees Duncan get stabbed. Mm -hmm. And then after the door is shut, that's actually when Duncan gets up again. He pulls the sword out of himself. He screams before he strikes. I'm like, you didn't have to scream before you you, you gave away (laughs) that you're still alive. Yeah, but but that's the point. Like that, again, it's smart storytelling to show that he's so loyal that he's not even doing it to perform for the two people that he's dying for. Like Mm -hmm. they're gone. They're behind a door. They can't see it any, they can't see him anymore, but he's still literally willing to take a sword out of his body and continue to kill Sardaukar because they're threatening his, mm-hmm. like, his guards. So, like, that, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Such a crazy. So good. <laughs> Casting Momoa in that was such a smart move because that the, that emotional under part of Paul's character is there in the book. It's just sort mm-hmm. of understated because he's sort of encouraged to, by his parents and by the whole system that they live in, to sort of repress that, to become... Yeah this you know very very logical person which is the mistake that lynch made is you know kyle mclaughlin is a great actor but he has no emotion in the 1984 version for the most part (laughs) it's just like yeah might as well just be probably because he didn't know what the hell he was saying um half the time because it's like what's a (laughs) Um, but having somebody like jason momoa who is just insanely charismatic you know Mm -hmm. in, in terms of his i don't know if he has a lot of range as an actor but whatever he what what he does he does really well and it's just yes. like man this is this guy is incredibly fun probably yeah. lights up any room he goes into and oh, yeah. anytime Chalamet is on screen with him it's almost, they're, they're obviously playing off against each each other with that charisma so it's not just mm-hmm. all sad boy Paul yeah or I'm trying to prevent the this terrible future Paul you've got you know him actually having a a, a human relationship with somebody yeah. who's not trying to manipulate him like his mom and his dad are half the time. And the fight scene is actually, it works really well because Villeneuve has done such a good job over the course of the movie, setting up the fact that this is way in the future. And so it's believable that Duncan could pull a sword out of his body and continue to fight because people have been doing weird, otherworldly, superhuman things all the way up until this, uh, up until this point, even if none of it's been explained, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that, these are humans leveled up essentially in a lot of ways yeah and i this is a little bit of a side note but the way that they did the body shields Mm -hmm. let's let's do let's have a whole conversation around this so before we get to that i just wanted to say a lesser movie or a lesser studio would have watched a first cut and be like okay jason momoa is working people love jason momoa let's have him survive into the end and Mm -hmm. put him into the sequel Mm -hmm. and that's what i was Again, expecting, but never bet against Denis and his team. They, they killed him off, which is the right thing to do, and I'm genuinely upset about it, and that's good. Yeah. Like, so that's what I'll mm-hmm. say, but the shields. So we've come a long way from the, let's say, Gumby, <laughs> clear Gumby shields of Dune 1984, the big blocks. Yeah. The if shields. You, if, to listeners, if you haven't seen the movie, you can just go on YouTube and look up some of the fight scenes from that and just see how they're basically little blocks. Little rectangles. <laughs> like ice blocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of clonking around. So yeah, the shields and the new movie, they vibrate when you turn them on, but you don't see them until mm-hmm. someone Contact. strikes against there. And yeah, when you strike against, it's kind of a clear, bluish, transparent color, opaque, I guess. And when mm-hmm. you pierce through it, they see they get away with this. They can't show blood or too much blood because it's PG thirteen. But the red lights when you pierce through the shields kind of 
are in place of blood. It's kind of like a cheat yeah. code to show blood. Mm. What'd you think of the shields, Doc? I thought it was I thought it was great. I mean, because that that is how they're just. I love the ones in in, in Lynch's just because they're so weird. It's just yeah. like a, it's a weird choice. Yeah, but no, absolutely. The way that they're described in the book, they are basically invisible. You know, the assumption is that everybody is wearing one. Yeah. But so that's why they can't just use lasers because it would cause nuclear explosions all the time. Um, but the way that they, they showed them in the movie, I thought was really interesting because it had, well, they could actually act. They had this little deal that they were, that they were pushing. So you could see the people not through that weird distorted effect that Lynch was mm-hmm. using, but the special effects for them made the fight scenes actually have, I don't know. They made, made them feel more serious. If, yeah. if that, if, does that make any sense? I'm not sure mm-hmm. in terms of that. Yeah. These are really people who are fighting with, with knives and swords and stuff like that. And if they screw up a little bit, they're going to get killed in just a, just an instant because all of them are so good that it's almost impossible to actually get through the, through their, through their guard. I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that it allowed them to act and it kind of raised the stakes a little bit when you can see like just how much, and also, I think it, it shows the skill that you have to move quickly to get close enough to move slow, if that makes sense. Because that's also the thing about the body shields is mm-hmm. that you can't penetrate it unless you're going at a super slow, kind of like it. you have to like get under the sensors almost. Yeah. So yeah, I think that kind of raises stakes. Yeah. Yeah. And the only bit of exposition that explains them is that fight between Gurney Halleck and Paul. I love that scene from start to finish. That scene is a hundred percent explaining stuff to the audience. It it is Mm -hmm. a dump of information, but it all feels natural. And the only one point where maybe it's a little iffy is when Gurney's knife goes through the shield onto Paul's neck. He goes, ah, the slow blade penetrates the shield. And it makes sense in that moment because they're shit talking the whole time. And he's like Mm -hmm. saying like, Listen, you can be all quick, but it's the slow knife that wins. Slow burn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So love that scene. Love Josh Brolin. Uh, sad that there was no uh, Balisette singing scene. I know that one was shot, but it did not make it to the final cut. So I didn't think Josh Brolin sang to begin with. So I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> that. to see I was that. intrigued to see that scene, but sadly, we won't see that. Maybe in the sequel. Maybe so. Yeah. The way that he said brutal in this in that scene, he was talking about the Harkonnens, they're, they're brutal. <laughs> he just really goes for it. You're like, holy crap. Yeah. Um, uh, this guy's seen some shit. Yeah. And you get it. You get it immediately. You're like, right, we got it, Josh. But I love the line that Paul says, like, I recognize your steps, old man. And later on during the spice harvester scene, when Paul's tripping out on Spice for the first time, mm-hmm. he says that same line right before Gurney comes in, picks him up. The first time I watched that, I'm like, that's brilliant because it's a nod. It's a, f- what's a nod to the sequel? Like, what is that? A future, a proactive reference? Uh, I guess, foreshadowing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. There it we is go. foreshadowing. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess that that's the correct term. Yeah, <laughs> we'll edit that out. But I'll keep it. Um, because, yes, Gurney saves him. But also, for anyone who's read the book, they meet up later on. Mm-hmm. Maybe Paul's going to say that as well, that he recognizes his steps again. So I thought that was brilliant, mm-hmm. too. And 
Josh Brolin, always great to see him. We loved him in No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. Love him as Thanos. I think he's great. He looks great in the armor too, in that scene with the bagpipes when they arrive on Arrakis. Yeah, what'd you think of Josh Brolin? I thought his performance was great. I mean, you need somebody... Like, I, I really like Patrick Stewart in mm-hmm. his performance oh, with yeah. the war pug and in the 1984 Never <laughs> version. Forget. Never forget yeah, the war pug. Never forget war pug. <laughs> but the, the, Brolin's is much more, Brolin's performance is much more indebted to the to the original because he is really described as being, like if, if, if Duncan Idaho is sort of the ballet dancer kind of, kind of fighter, Gurney Halleck is no 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 less skilled, but he's 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 more of the goon. I guess is the best way of putting it. Who's the brute? Or the, yeah, yeah, the master sergeant who is able to get everybody to get everybody in line and is much more direct and to the point. And so having someone like Josh Brolin who just comes across as being to the point, I guess is the yeah. best way of putting it. I think it was just great casting mm-hmm. by by Villeneuve and a, a really wonderful performance. Yeah, super grizzled. I guess. Is yes. The word. <laughs> I would use. And the last you see of him in the film is him during the attack on Erekeen. He says, after me! And they go and fight with the bagpipes mm-hmm. once again. Let's play by the rules of if you don't show his death, that means he's alive. So mm-hmm. we'll definitely for sure see him in the sequel. Yeah. I was going to bring up a couple of the characters, but I wasn't going to do it very uh, gracefully. So... Um, I wanted to jump over to the House Harkonnen or Harkonnen characters because we talked about colonialism in the beginning and I have been looking forward to talking about this with you, Sean, because we analyzed Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now in Mm -hmm. film and lit, which is the class that I took with you. And as soon as I stop, saw Stellan Skarsgård come out of the mud and like rub his bald oh, the, head. No, the steam bath. They the brought steam, they brought yeah. back the steam bath from Sting in the oh, space bomb. Yeah, <laughs> but as soon as I saw hit that overweight, yeah. that that rubbing his head and the way that he was talking, I was like, this is Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, and I freaked out. And again, we just talked about how colonialism is sort of the through line throughout this movie and this story. And so I don't know if Denis Villeneuve did that on purpose, but the visual storytelling in that was like, I, I literally like, I fell over on my sofa because I watched it, it at home it has, as well. It has to be on purpose. It it's like a direct reference. So yeah. yeah, I just wanted to know your reaction to that or if you were as excited to see that as I was. I actually didn't notice that. I mean, I, oh. I, I, thinking back at it though, obvi- it's, it's pretty obvious and Villeneuve must be thinking, yeah, just put him in the place of, Colonel Kurtz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's amazing. I mean, there's this shot where he's been, like being pulled out of the mud bath by his little like floaty suit, which by the way is super creepy in this movie. They did a great job, yes. I think, at depicting that. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny when Duke Leto crunches his tooth and he sort of like deflates like a balloon and they find him kind of hanging by the ceiling. Yeah. That like was a spi- like up there like a spider or like Yeah, like a, I know. Like a spider I thought it was baby. Fine. Yeah, it's not like Shiloh and Lord of the Rings that sort of thing. Just like, like, yeah, it was it was so. I think they did that really, really well. I love that suspender suit. Yeah, but yeah, when he comes out of that mud bath and he's just like, if you go back and watch it again, he's just like 
kind of slopping mud off the back of mm-hmm. his head like this and it's like it's a shot of his back and like the sort of the rolls on his neck mm-hmm. and I was just like oh my god I I was like dying I was so excited because that's just incredible storytelling yeah but anyway I was just gonna ask both of you how in general the Harkonnen house like struck you and how like the the evilness really changed between this version and the Lynch version well, in this version, they are not just screaming maniacs. Yes. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> That's kind of the problem. I mean, again, I love Lynch's version, but they don't seem to have any motivation in his version of the film, except for just because they're nuts. You know, because yeah. all of them are screaming all the time, whether it's Bar- Baron Harkonnen going, ha or... <laughs> them squishing little bugs and or whatever it is that they're oh. eating and those little juicers ripping out heart plugs and bathing oh. under oil. I don't, it's, it's so bizarre. So don't forget the spitting on people. Yeah. Yeah. The spitting on people. <laughs> <laughs> but in this version, what, I mean, in the, in the novel, they have very clear motivations for what they, for what they do. I mean, mm-hmm. they're evil because they're oppressors and they don't have any problem with oppressing. And they've turned Gidi Prime into an industrial superfine site, essentially. But the way that they're portrayed is that they're decadent. They they're they're aesthetes in in the sense that they like Baron Harkonnen is fat because he's a glutton. He likes good mm-hmm. food, not just because he's terrible. But they have a very clear rationale in the novel about why they're doing all the things that they're doing. And that was what I thought was very interesting or actually really, really smart about the portrayal of, of them in this in this version, because they stand out as actual as actual villains, as opposed to sort of cardboard cutouts like they were in in, in Lynch's in Lynch's version. Mm-hmm. Um, and having Dave Batista as as the Beast Bond is was just wonderful casting. I mean, he's, yeah. he's, he's you know, when I when I saw that, I can't remember what movie I saw him in first. Um, it's probably Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, Dave yeah. Batista, Dave Batista, the wrestler, is in this. <laughs> That's not going to be any good. Right. I mean, who does he think he is? Rowdy Roddy Piper. That's the only wrestler who's ever was ever was a good <laughs> a good actor. I guess the Rock. He Rock is a good action star, but you know, you know what That's I mean. That's true too. Yeah. But uh, as I've seen more movies, it's, it's obvious that he takes it seriously, um, being mm-hmm. an actor, and he gives really good performances. And yeah, he's 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 really malignant and horrible in this but at the same time you get the idea that he is he's 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 not just an idiot Mm -hmm. like he like he was in the in in the original movie yeah i love the look of the harkonnens they truly feel soulless they're like Mm -hmm. trolls they're pale white all bald including the eyebrows Mm-hmm. And the, the Baron has these androgynous, black-eyed servants along with him. Uh, Piter DeVries, played by David Desmalchin, very mm-hmm. underrated actor. He's great, although not enough scenes with Piter. Probably another con of the movie, one of the few, mm-hmm. one of the few negatives I have. But the direct opposite of the Dune movie, where the yeah these big lively people with these bright red hair and <laughs> the Baron in that movie is just a balloon whose belt suit is a jetpack. He's just floating around mm-hmm. in Villeneuve's version. It's truly horrifying. And in the space of decadence, you just have blackness. You have nothing like they mm-hmm. truly only care about industry and profits. 
and they mm-hmm. don't even des- like their space isn't even designed. It's just a a dark pit. Gavy Prime is just a black industrial factory that's as wide as the planet, and mm-hmm. with just one nightmare spa in the middle of it. That's just right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even their pets, which is, this was in addition to the movie, they have like a little spider pet in that one great scene, Charlotte Rampling, the Reverend Mother, commands away, saying like, it understands. And fun fact, that spider was actually a real actor in a suit. I think they added limbs with CGI, but that was a real contortionist from Cirque du Soleil who came in. And for a day <laughs> and did that scene. So creepy. Such a inspired addition. Yeah. But loved Stellan Skarsgård. I felt a pit in my stomach whenever he was on screen. Mm-hmm. And it's as hilarious as it is haunting how quickly he kills Dr. Yui. Once Dr. Yui comes back mm-hmm. and says, I did what you want for me. He floats over out of focus, which is another inspired chef's kiss Moment. choice. Yeah. To just have him float over there. You just see his feet scraping against yeah. the table. He slowly comes by. His belly hits Dr. Yui first. And then, boom, decapitated off screen. Mm-hmm. Beautiful choice. So I love the look of the Harkonnens. Yeah. Oof, that's such a creepy scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Denis is the master at inducing dread. And you really felt that whenever you saw the Harkonnens. And likewise with the Sardaukar soldiers in this movie. I love, I absolutely love that the Sardaukar and Villeneuve's Dune, are, they're more like a fanatical blood cult that the great houses are just super terrified yeah. of. <laughs> yeah, that was intense. Like the Harkonnens, truly scary. And in one scene, you get everything, all the information you know. It's like, okay, in Seleucus Secundus, you see their planet, it's raining, there's this one guy on top of the pillar going like very it's like very reminiscent (laughs) of kind of like a mongolian uh, tibetan chant but it's very guttural and you're like "Ooh, this is this is intense and they're all on one knee getting face paint and then it pulls out and you see that that face paint is blood from i don't know prisoners or past warriors warriors who knows you don't know they're dead but their dude is being bled into a giant bowl <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah all the blood is just forming into a stream that these monks are putting all and in one scene Piter's like we need you guys and the sword guard's like you know f you like why why should we come help you and they say that house atreides is the most brave fierce soldiers and then sword guard's like well we're we're a match for them and then bam the it's set you get it and throughout the movie you can tell okay harkonnens they're in the black suits sardaukar are in the white suits and which subverts mm-hmm. your expectations yes. of you know the good and the bad and the light in the dark you know motifs and stuff which is cool yeah absolutely loved the sardaukar mm-hmm. loved all the fighting style as, as we've talked about before the fight on the stairs with the last of House Atreides, I mean, super sad, but uh, effective. Uh, they're just wiped out like that mm-hmm. in, in an instant. Also, a great instance of showing, not telling. You can you can see different groups' values. So House Atreides is a house of loyalty and honor. They fight to the death, defending. And then in a scene later on, Duck in Idaho escapes slaughters a band of Harkonnens by one Thopter and another band of 
Harkonnens, they see that slaughter and they run away. So Harkonnens, they're ruled by fear, like fear from mm-hmm. the Baron. They have no loyalty to the Baron. They're only in it because they're just more or less forced into it or they don't have any values at all. So you get that in an instance where Sardaukar are, are inhuman and they're just these weird blah, 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 chanting, weird fanatical cult people. So mm-hmm. I loved the differences, the dichotomy between the two groups, I, the soldiers. I really love the sound design on their voices. I, I don't yeah. know what... I mean, obviously, it's some weird made-up language, but also it's whatever filter they processed it through just did make them seem, like you said, like like they are inhuman. And the same way with the, the Harkonnen, I don't know, the nightmare spa attendant who was talking to, to, to Raban. There's something they did with her voice, too, that was, made it sound very strange. <laughs> I don't know exactly how to, how to describe mm-hmm. what that... It gave me the willies, basically, in both those both those, those sections. Yeah, uh, Sean. So I this is purely if you if you don't have an answer, then that's totally fine. This is purely out of curiosity. But we talked about how colonialism is a pretty major theme in this whole thing. And do the Sardaukar represent anything that you can sort of tell in real life? Is there any like one-to-one real life example of what they're supposed to represent or anything? Have you come across that? Well, I mean, in terms of in terms of what Herbert was going for with the Sardaukar, they're at least partly uh, partly go along with his all of his his critiques of religion and his ideas that religion can be manipulated because they mm-hmm. do. I mean, they're described as soldier fanatics um, yeah. in, the, in the novel, you know, so they do have this religion that they follow, even though it's never actually specified in any, any, any kind of detail whatsoever. And interestingly, they're another oppressed group um, mm, because mm. Seleucus Secundus is, is a hellhole and it's his, it's the emperor's prison planet. And he sends prisoners there specifically so they'll be brutalized. Um, and he uses this prison planet to recruit the Sardaukar. And so the people who can just survive the climate are already tough as hell. And then he can put them through this, uh, through this religious uh, programming, essentially, yeah. um, to create this core of, of warriors that allows the emperor to maintain control over all mm-hmm. of these other sets of colonialists who are fighting for power um, amongst themselves. I, I don't know if yeah. there's any, there's no real world, I, I don't think. Um, one-to-one comparison no that totally answers my question i guess the one change made to them is they they lean into the fanatical cult part but they also give mm-hmm. them a laser cannon <laughs> a little wait no they have, they have laser <laughs> yeah i don't know if they use them in that particular scene but that was a good scene but yeah love love the sardaukar and it was heartbreaking when they killed leah kine so this transitions nicely, yeah this is a nicely. difference from the book so it's highly mm-hmm. publicized, but the role of Liet Kynes was gender flipped. It's now played by a woman, mm-hmm. the great Sharon Duncan Brewster. I've never seen her in anything else, but she absolutely killed the part. Very memorable, very up to the task. What, what did you think of the character of Liet yeah. Kynes in the movie? Well, I was, at first it kind of surprised me because I, I hadn't followed much of the casting news or anything like that for, I don't know, four years or something like that since yeah. she started mm-hmm. making it. And I saw... Once I, I saw who was playing Paul, I was like, okay, that makes sense. And the other big mm-hmm. names like Josh Brolin as, as Gurney Halleck, I was like, oh, this is looking like a good cast. I didn't think anything else, anything of, uh, if I'd seen anything about who was cast to play Leah Kynes. 
I didn't mm-hmm. notice or didn't 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 notice the importance of that. At least in terms of this half of the movie, I think it surprised me. But then it was just like, well, yeah, of course it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. This part could be a man or a woman. The only only issue is if if depending on how he ha- handles Fremen culture in part two, because the Fremen are very very patriarchal. I mean, it's a it's a patriarchal society. They're they're not depicted as being perfect by any stretch of the imagination uh, mm-hmm. by Herbert. So I don't know in terms of like the internal logic of how that would work. Would would the Fremen actually have a woman as their like John the Baptist essentially, or mm-hmm. would they accept that? But on the other hand, they have reverend mothers who have a lot of power in, in their society. So I don't know. It, it would be, I mean, she's dead, so it doesn't matter for yeah. part two <laughs> so, yeah. in, in, yeah. in some ways. <laughs> but uh, um, it's an, it, I thought it was a really interesting, cho- interesting choice. And, and actually one, sh- one that showed, I think, that almost the choice to flip the gender didn't matter because all they needed was a really good actor to play the part. Mm-hmm. Right. How did you feel about the change in the death scene for Liet? Did you like it? Yeah, I did. I actually did like it because otherwise yeah. it would have been, otherwise it would have been too, it would have been too divorced from the rest of the action. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was that was that was going on. If if the, it suddenly cut to the middle of a desert and she's crawling around without her still suit. Yeah. Um, and then she she also has some agency. <laughs> in, yeah. In, her, in right. her own death. Absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say. Like, I I think, unfortunately, Liet Kine's death in the book, for any listeners who haven't read the book, it kind of turns into this hallucinatory journey, I guess, where Liet, who we've kind of talked about, he's a man in the book, and he kind of hallucinates about his father, and yeah, ends up dying in the middle of the desert, kind of just not really roaming around, just kind of like passes out at, at the end and is and then a big gas bubble. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I really did like how she in the movie was able, like you said, has agency over her death and it, it kind of means something like it, it ends up, you know, doing a little bit of something to help put some distance yes. between Paul and Jessica. Yeah. She, and she takes down some Sardaukar yeah. with her. Yeah. I got to admit in the book, it's, it's a low point for me that uh Kynes's <laughs> death scene it's like 12 pages and it just goes on and on and especially on a second read you're like none of this really matters yeah. uh, <laughs> not to me at least it well in the book it's i mean it's an exposition dump because yeah. you're getting mm. it, it, it serves basically for herbert to get across the idea get, get across the way in which this fake religion that the Benny Gesserit have set up has been changed by the environment of Arrakis. That mm. these people in this hellish planet, of course, their vision of paradise is going to be a planet where it rains once in a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then you get this conversation with Kynes' father, or this fake conversation with his father, the first imperial planetologist who figured out how the water cycle on Arrakis worked. And then that helps to set up the idea that the Fremen, oh, if the Fremen actually had the resources, they could pull this off. You know, they could make Arrakis into not this nightmare planet, but into 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 like a paradise where everybody has enough to uh, enough enough water to drink. Um, essentially, mm-hmm. they don't have to rely on a Morton Joe like turning on the pumps or anything like that. Yeah, weird Mad Max reference, but anyway. Um, <laughs> which they've done really they already did all that really well in the movie with the date palms uh the scene yeah. when yes. they, when the atreides first get there and yeah. 
I can't. Rem- I don't remember who what the who the character is, or even if it's a character from the book who's out there with a dipper of water and is just watering yeah. to the date palms. And he asks why they're there, and they basically represent hope for the future yeah. for, for for people. So they didn't need to do the whole exposition dump, and they could handle the more sweet sandworm action. Um, yeah, sweet sandworm. <laughs> Although death, they tease, scene, um, which is what everybody really wants. Yes. Yeah. I know. When I was watching it the first time and she brought out the thumper, I'm like, holy smokes, this is happening. And I, I'm i like, they're gonna, she's gonna survive. I thought the same thing like I did with Duncan Haido. I'm like, he's gonna survive. Definitely not gonna die here. We're gonna see some sandworm riding, but we're not at part two yet. They teased it right. for a split second at the end, which I wasn't even expecting them to do that. It's just enough. You see a guy, but he's mostly shrouded in smoke. Maybe a woman, actually. You don't see, I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, or gender neutral person. They, yep. <laughs> but although it was a little disappointing that we didn't see Sandworm riding at that moment, a great death. And yeah, the starter card is like, you betrayed the emperor. And Liet Kine says, I serve only one master. Shai Halud and does the three mm-hmm. bumps on the sand and they all just sink down into the mouth and you just get a brief glimpse. Again, you never get a full glimpse of a sandworm, even when it's chasing Paul and Lady Jessica. You get you get the he, he comes out, but yeah. you don't like like the full, you know what I'm saying? I guess the length. I don't know. You get mm-hmm. the girth, not the length. Yes. You realize <laughs> I, I Jesus Christ. <laughs> That was well. You yeah, asked for in it. the most phallic sense possible. Yes, this um, isn't David Lynch's Dune, where they are just giant toothed penis worms running around. The you're desert. right. You're right. Yeah, in, in this version, they look like butts, buttholes. <laughs> um, they do. I'm sorry. I don't. They kind of do. I don't mean to be crass. They look like buttholes. Um, but I saw this on IMAX opening weekend. Mm-hmm. Every scene with the sandworms just blew me away. I mean, the sound is reverberating until you're concussed almost. <laughs> and Hans Zimmer is blaring on the horns. Uh, love the score. It's still in theaters. I would recommend going back to see it if you can. Maybe a safely, ma- right, safely yeah. uh, mm-hmm. wear a mask, but maybe a matinee screening where there's not a lot of people to get the full experience. It, I've seen it twice in the theaters now. <laughs> And mm-hmm. both times are religious experience. Like I, I understand <laughs> the Fremen. I understand the Sardaukar. Like this is my religion now. Um, yeah, I, I already worship Denny V, and I have the Atreides shoes. I mean, I'm in the cult. I'm yeah, in the cult, <laughs> you drank the Kool Aid. Yeah. Um. Well, some. I don't know if this is. If this is like maybe a little bit of a splinter into a, a different. Um, direction but when we talked about Liet Kine's death in the book it reminded me of something that I wanted to talk about which is how something I really love about the book is how well it introduces readers to like thousands of years of history and sort of how even though all of this is happening in this book right now the Benny Gesserit very clearly state like we're planning that this works, but we're also planning for a backup plan because it very well might not work out the way that we want it to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I don't necessarily, not only me, but I guess just humans in general have a really hard time sort of conceptualizing millennia, like thousands of years of time. 
And for some reason, I don't know what it is about mm-hmm. Dune, but the way that Frank Herbert writes makes me really, it kind of like, it lets all of this stuff sink in. Like you understand, you have a really good grasp of how many thousands of years have gone into the creation of like Paul and then how many years in the future. And this kind of gets to the end of the book too, about how you can't, you start like skipping ahead in time really quickly, but how much time is going to come after it. And like, it almost doesn't matter what happens because it's just like time will just continue and continue and like not really care about what happens with these characters lives. That's something that I find really interesting about Dune. I think the movie did that really well too, just with how, what a big spectacle it is, mm-hmm. but it's just surprising. Like, I don't think I ever, I don't get that feeling from a lot of other books. I'm just surprised at how well Frank Hubert does that. Yeah. I mean, he does a really good job of making it clear. The, the, the best comparison I can think of is with, with the Lord of the Rings. Mm. Which makes sort of sense because like, I remember like when I was in high school, there's like two camps of nerds. You could be a Dune nerd or you could be a Lord of the Rings nerd. And there's not very much crossover between them. That's probably because they're so similar. It's like the most human characters in like Lord of the Rings are the hobbits because they have no sense of history for the most part. Whereas Mm -hmm. everybody else knows exactly where they fit in this long saga going back thousands of years. Yeah. Dune is like if everybody was elves, but they're all horrible. Kind of what it is. And, you know, the Benny Gesserit or like Elrond, except if Elrond wanted to run, run the rule, universe, rule the universe yeah. some, someday. Yeah. He does a very good job of getting that sense of history um, yeah. into it, which is, I think, one of the reasons, and this is sort of goes back, goes to the, spe- goes to the spectacle of the, of the entire thing, is that for such a big movie, a lot of those big scenes seem slow. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in the yeah. sense that Villeneuve lets let's just just stare mm. at this big vista for it's probably not actually all that long when because I mean I know CGI and special effects are really expensive, so yeah. <laughs> they're, they're gonna they're gonna trim down the seconds whenever they possibly can. But it's there there is this sense of not stasis, that's not the right word, but there is this sense of that he's letting us take, he gives us time to take it all in as opposed to, it's it's not like Michael Bay where everything is spinning around constantly. It's just like, it's more like Lawrence of Arabia-esque kind of of big picture, which is kind of what I think is the biggest triumph of the entire movie is that it it gets that scope without having all the exposition. Cause like one reason why I think a lot of people think that, well, why I thought that Dune was unfilmable is that most of it isn't action. And Mm -hmm. the, the battle scenes and the action, the action sequences for the most part, aside from things like sword fights and knife fights and stuff like that, they're just sort of described in like a paragraph Mm -hmm. or a chapter. And Villeneuve is able to take those moments and they don't really take up that much more time in the movie than they do in the book, or at least in terms of like proportion of the, mm-hmm. of, of the length of it. But he's got such a big vision of mm-hmm. how to take it all in that makes it, I don't know, it makes it work <laughs> in a way that I was, I was not, I was not expecting it to. I mean, I, I had, I mean, if anybody could do it, Villeneuve could, <laughs> but yeah. it was, it was, I, I was not as confident that it would be as successful as it actually was. Right. Especially with one of the co-screenwriters is John Spates. 
and he's co-written stuff like Prometheus and Passengers, and those are not great movies, have a lot of exposition no. <laughs> and, and unanswered questions. So the fact mm-hmm. that this was able to economically convey information in a smart, astute way, not cheap way, they never demean the audience, is quite the triumph. Yeah. yeah. There are two things I want to talk about, and then we'll get into final thoughts. So... Have brought up our girl Rebecca Ferguson, who we've who we've made fun of in, in past episodes, like Doctor Sleep and Girl on the Train, for not doing the best American accent. Luckily, she's in her native British accent in this one, and I think she kills it. Who who wait, who did she play? Oh, Lady Jessica. Oh, okay. Yeah, loved her in this role. They added more emotion to her character she was breaking down uh, much more than she did in the books at least Mm -hmm. what i remember from rereading it a few weeks ago yeah she felt much more real much more like an actual mom Mm -hmm. and maybe perhaps she's slightly too young to be the mother of timothy chalamet i sometimes my mind would be like wait a second they're not she's his mother, but oh, yeah, it's okay. I, he's he's gonna look like he's fourteen until he turns forty, and then he's gonna turn yeah, into a right. gargoyle. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. But I'm happy to say, for our longtime listeners, we finally found a Rebecca Ferguson movie outside of the Mission Impossible movies that we like her in. Woo! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Or what'd you think of Lady Jessica? Yeah, I, I think that you're right. By adding more emotion to her, they made her a more dynamic character because I don't know how you feel, Sean, but in my second reading of Dune, I there's just so many times where she's looking at Paul and Paul does something and she reacts and she's like, I'm so impressed with my boy. I'm so impressed with my son. Or like, he's making all the right moves. Or like, he's... So like that, that got I'm a little frightened bit... by my son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that, that got a little repetitive for me, but I, I think that she walked a really great line of like, she is a Benny Gesserit, but she also is really, and she's, she's a more interesting character because she breaks a lot of their rules. And mm-hmm. for example, like she wasn't supposed to have Paul. She was, she was ordered by the Benny Gesserit to have only daughters and she, I guess I'm not really sure the mechanics of it, or maybe I'm just not remembering it, but she decided maybe not to abort the um, a male fetus or, or just, I'm not sure how the mechanics the, of that work. The, but. the Benny Jesserit have total control over their body chemistry. That's gotcha. like part of, part of their thing is, is that they can do whatever they, whatever do, they can do whatever they want. So you can't poison a Benny Jesserit because they can convert. Right. Like they the can they go down to the molecular structure and like change some atoms around and stuff like that. Right, so, right. Yeah, that that's coming back to me. So she decided not to manipulate her fetus into a female fetus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I think that like that other side of her comes across really well in the movie because like I said, she she's okay breaking the rules because of she kind of has an internal code rather than just the Bene Gesserit code. And I, I just like how they portray that in the movie a lot. Yeah, me too. In the, in the book, it all happens like in the inner monologue. Mm. So you never actually see her breaking down most of the time. It all happens sort of off page, I guess is the best way of putting it. Or she's yeah. standing outside the uh, outside the door when uh, Paul's being tested by the Reverend Mother. 
undergoing the Gom Jabbar test. And, you know, she's she's breaking down internally, but she's enough of Benny Jesseret that she recites the litany against fear so that she won't break down externally. Right. And so in the book, almost every, almost everybody is very repressed emotionally, which mm-hmm. is just doesn't work <laughs> in a movie. Right. You can't have a bunch of, you can have one Spock, but you can't have 800 Spocks running around yeah. on screen. That's exactly what I was trying to say. You're saying it perfectly. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yeah, so the fact that she actually expresses that emotion makes it so she well she makes it more makes her more of a character, uh, really, so that she's much more she we we can understand what she's actually going through. Mm-hmm. Even if she is a Benny Jesseret and she has that code that she's following, she has her own reasons for breaking that code. Yeah. Yeah. And she's a badass. They include that scene where she bests Stilgar, but also the final mm-hmm. point, the voice. So this was something I'm like, how is Denny V gonna film this? Are they going to include it? I predicted that they wouldn't because it's so weird. But the voice is this Benny Gesserit training tactic where they manipulate their voice to get people to do stuff for them telepathy through audio through your voice i loved how it's kind of off sync and especially when paul is learning and he's not quite there how he talks but you just hear the bass first and then the voice the creepy voice comes after that Mm -hmm. super creepy when the reverend mother does it against paul and he just arrives at her feet again perfect exposition it's creepy you understand what it is immediately you don't have to explain it. It can kind of be interpreted as not a force like power, even though it is, but it's like, oh, maybe tens of thousands of years of training your voice, you can you can get to a place where you can manipulate people to do what you want. Maybe that could happen. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what did you think of the, the voice in the new movie? No, I thought it was amazing. I mean, I thought everything having to do with the Benny Gesserit and in, in this version was was just great. Because not only the voice, you know, it, it is, again, really deeply unsettling in terms of the way that the sound design is, is, is hap- it works, especially with the, with the scene with Paul. I can't remember if, the, if, if, it was, if it was the same when Jessica orders the, the Harkonnens to land or to kill each other. If it's that mm-hmm. same quick cut sort of thing where you go directly from the, from the voice, the order, the command being given to it happening. I can't remember if that's quite how it happened, but just everything. I don't know who played the Reverend Mother, Charlotte Rampling. Charlotte Rampling was, but she's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The costume design was so good for her. Like you can kind of see her face, but you don't. Yeah. Uh huh. It's just horrifying. She's got that the the Gamja bars and this needle yeah. that she's holding like this at Paul's neck. It, everything. It's just the sense that the the, the fact. You, you get the sense that they actually have all the power. Yeah. You know, and the fact yeah. that she comes to the, comes to Giddy Prime and says, cone of silence, and you can't really hear anything <laughs> that they're saying, but you know that she has really just given them the business <laughs> yeah. about what they, what they need to do, and that she's the one who's actually in charge. And so then once she leaves, and it's just the Baron and uh, Raban s- sitting there, it's almost like that he, like the Baron ha- feels like he has to like levitate up and make himself bigger than Raban mm. in order to get back some of his power that he's just been 
that's just been taken away by the uh, by the Reverend Mother yeah. uh, at that point. It's really really an interesting. God, it's, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really good catch. I didn't even realize that because you're right. She's so powerful that even she kind of humbles the Baron. And that's obviously really mm-hmm. hard to do. And it makes him very uncomfortable and angry. So that yes. would be his first response is to like make himself physically bigger than anyone around him to like regain that power. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Charlotte Rampling's delivery of goodbye, young human. I hope you live. Oh, that gave me goosebumps. Yeah. Uh, yeah everything oh, yeah. with Benny Gesserit. I agree. Mm-hmm. Hopefully more Charlotte Rampling in the sequels too. She's great. All right. Well, yeah. Yeah. We've arrived at the end. We could talk with you about Dune for 10 more hours and let's actually. Well, part two. I mean, we've got a plan on part two. Obviously, you'll be on for part two. I am looking forward to it. (laughs) So, final thoughts and your final rating for the movie out of four stars. Go ahead. Um, I think that Denis Villeneuve did the next to impossible uh, i didn't think that this would be i th- I figured it would be a good movie i figured it would be enjoyable at the very least but i figured that it wouldn't get the scope of the novel but it's he, he achieved like everything that i thought was not possible uh, with it did he get everything in the movie in the book of course not i mean he's, he's obviously focusing on parts of it because it's an adaptation and he can't mm-hmm. do everything with it but it was, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a good movie, and it was really enjoyable, and it was as big as it should have been. And I guess you know, one one great thing about it was, you know, I was watching it with Elizabeth, and I asked her how she liked it if afterwards, and she was just like, "I really enjoyed it." She said, mm. "It helped to have you here to ask questions every five mm-hmm. minutes." Awesome. But <laughs> she yeah. enjoyed watching the movie. She didn't do it just because she likes me. <laughs> she yeah. actually liked the movie. <laughs> And so I'd say four out of four stars. It was ama- it was amazing, and I can't wait until the the second part comes out. Heck yeah, awesome! And we also approve of Elizabeth now. Now that we know that she likes Dune. So, uh. Yeah, I guess I'll go next. I mean, four out of four. No, no Woo! spoilers there. I mean, yeah. I even the fact that the book that the new movie helped me enjoy the book over a second reading is a success in itself because I would find it kind of hard to recommend the book to anybody, especially if they weren't a huge sci-fi fan. But now that I have the movie in my back pocket to say like, maybe watch this first. And if you have questions, then going back to the book is a really good place to start. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's a really great, I, I mean, it's a great companion piece. Like, I don't know how he did this like like you said Sean like he pulled off the absolute impossible I had a great time watching it and I I can't believe that I've reread the book I mean I truly never yeah. thought that I was going to reread the book <laughs> nor did I and I did and I honestly would probably dive into it especially when the second part comes out I'll enjoy the second half of the book a lot more so. Woo. <laughs> I'm gonna go three out of four no just kidding uh, obviously <laughs> four out of four <laughs> It's the fastest two and a half hours of my life. Uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say there are times where I truly forgot I was watching a film. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. that immersive. It's a feast of visuals and audio, a true event. Um, Loved it. I've seen it four times, plan to see it more. Can't (laughs) wait for the sequel. It's going to be the longest two hours. Going to be the longest two years. We have to wait, but such is life. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's part of the part of what made it possible is that he got two movies to do it in. If it yes. just yeah. in one movie, it would have been a train wreck. Oh, <laughs> oh my Agreed. God. There, no, yeah, there's no way. I mean, even as a three or three and a half hour movie, it would have been really shitty. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully there are pugs in the sequel. We got no pugs in this uh <laughs> need, one, need so. more war pugs yeah. <laughs> running into battle yes yes and, exactly and patrick stewart's there i don't know what role he played maybe he's gonna be fade ralph or the emperor Ooh, oh yes go. maybe yeah that's good that's has good he cast idea. the emperor for the not has he, yet has villeneuve no. he hasn't no you heard it here first mm. folks yeah it's gonna be patrick stewart <laughs> or a pug right yeah. oh just 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 a pug <laughs> All right. Where can people find you, Doc, if you wish to be found? Uh, well, uh, I'm not on Twitter or anything like that. Uh, occasionally I post on Facebook, but I don't have that much of a social media presence. Awesome. Uh, if you're really interested, you can come to UJ and take English classes with me. Or download your dissertation. They can find That's you true. online. That's right. They can download my dissertation about the connections between early modern funeral sermons and early modern poetry. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's not as good to read as Dune is. <laughs> you lost me at desertion. I don't even know the word. Desert stations. Um, thanks for listening. Desert stations. <laughs> you lost me at desert stations. I'm hungry now. Uh, thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram at film is lit pod underscore after each word. You can find us on Facebook film is lit podcast. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review subscribe. All right. It's follow now, not subscribe. They changed it. If you want to, you don't have to, but yes, tune in next week when we cover Candyman based Ooh. off of Clive Barker's story, The Forbidden. That's going to be fun. But Doc, thank you again so much. Always a pleasure. Well, thank you guys for having me. Of, of course. course. Yeah. And yeah, can't wait to rewatch Dune. <laughs> me either. <laughs> well, we'll see you on the next one.